constitutional changes, I must say. He came back from Aruba <clears throat> and uh, he saw inroads uh, for uh, what you call um, trade union inroads because they were taking advantage on the working people. It was after the spoils of war and there were a lot of big profits in the estates and uh, they were not sharing it with the little people. Um, W.E. Julian, who I think was a wonderful religion, told the big boys of this country that they made Eric who he was because they refused to share the spoils of war because there were big profits and whatnot. But they wanted to pay the little people almost nothing. Those days, it was the plantocracy and all the estates in Grenada. It was not like today. They were owned by white or semi-white people. And they had no respect for uh, the local, especially rural blacks. This is the Let's We Forget podcast, a historical podcast by Tenement Yard Media. I'm Gabrielle, your host for this episode. This episode is the second in this season's coverage of the people, events, causes and consequences that led to the 1979 Grenadian Revolution, which, fun fact, is the only successful revolution in the Anglophone Caribbean. In this episode, we examine the rise and reign of the era of Garyism in Grenada. Let's get into it. After years of societal tension in Grenada, everything would come to head in 1951 at an event now known as the 1951 Revolution. The person who propelled this event was a former primary school teacher by the name Eric Matthew Gary. Eric Gary was the son of a plantation overseer in the rural area of St. Andrew, Grenada. Throughout his teens, he served as a primary school teacher, and then in the early 1940s, he left Grenada to go work in Aruba in the oil fields of Lego Oil and Transport Company. In 1949, he returned to Grenada after being deported from Aruba. Still, this worked in Gary's favor because he had returned to Grenada in one of the island's most definitive historical moments. It was a moment where 98% of the farmers owned 53% of the land and 1.45% of the population owned 44.68% of the land. As such, one of the first things Gary did upon his return home was defending a group of peasants. Here's how it went. An Englishman who recently bought an estate, quote-unquote, free of encumbrances, decided to evict poor peasants who had been living on this estate for years. When they decided to organize around their right to be on the land, Gary joined them. He would be vocal about the peasants receiving a compensation of £3,000 as stated under the Tenants' Compensation Ordinance. This effort was successful as this Englishman charged the sales agent with betrayal. With this activism, Gary would be catapulted to fame among Grenadian peasants. Going off this newfound fame, in 1950 Gary registered his new trade union, the Grenada Manual and Mental Workers Union, GMMWU, with himself being styled as the union's president general. Immediately, he demanded a 50% wage increase for all sugar plantations at the Grenada Sugar Factory Limited. 
When his demand was rejected by the authorities, Gary organized a strike involving 496 workers. This strike was also supported by 430 peasants from surrounding estates. Soon, Gary would also add to his demand a 20% wage increase for all workers on cocoa and nutmeg estates. In retaliation, the government granted a 25% increase to workers and other unions tried to bypass the GMMWU. The Employer Society tried to work out a deal with the less controversial union, the Grenada Trade Union Council, GTUC. This partnership would prove disastrous as the employers refused to increase the minimum wage for cocoa workers, but promised that the workers would, quote, receive bonuses based on a formula tied to the price of cocoa, end quote. When the price of cocoa fell in the last quarter of 1950, the employers announced that they would reduce wages from 94 cents to 91 cents for men and 78 to 76 cents for women. When the Grenada Trade Union Council pleaded with the Employer Society to let the wages remain as they were, the employers refused. This incident would hurt the credibility of the GTUC, but incidentally would lead to the popularity of Gary and the GMMWU, and come late January 1951, Gary would seize upon this opportunity. In January of 1951, Gary visited several plantations where he started organizing workers. At some point while talking to workers at the Lassages estate, Gary was harassed by the owner and in retaliation, the workers went on strike. The next day, workers from a nearby plantation also went on strike and in a matter of weeks, surrounding plantations also had similar strikes. Now of note, these strikes were violent. The years of bottled societal tension spilled open and the frustration of black and poor Grenadians was unleashed. On February 20, looting and arson took place throughout the island and many estates were set on fire. The violence skyrocketed as Gary echoed the word sky red when he wanted a specific estate to be set on fire. This was the first island-wide strike in Grenada's history. Then on the 21st of February, Gary organized a large rally outside of Grenada's parliament. As parliament was in session, he demanded a meeting with the governor of the island. Gary encouraged the crowd by saying, We shall stand together, we shall die together. And don't work, don't sleep. The poor and black population of Grenada that had for such a long time been neglected loved this and soon, Gary would be seen as a hero. Nevertheless, the governor refused to meet with Gary and ordered the state to arrest him and his assistant Herbert Gale. Soon both men were arrested and sent off to the neighboring island of Karikou, a dependency island of Grenada. This arrest actually worked in Gary's favor as he was now seen as a martyr by the working class. Even while arrested, Gary had huge support outside of Grenada. There were massive crowds in Trinidad and Tobago demanding his freedom. But Gary also had another supporter, Alexander Bustamante, a Jamaican politician who would become Chief Justice in 1953 and the island's first Prime Minister in 1962 who would echo the cause of Gary's release. 
With Grenadian authorities ignoring these demands, the island's unrest continued. The event to become known as Grenada's 1951 revolution would involve almost 5,000 agricultural workers and around 1,500 urban employees. The state tried unsuccessfully to curb the unrest, but it only resulted in police killing four persons and injuring five others. Yet the workers never faltered and the protesters surged on. Realizing his failure, the governor released Gary, who was brought back to the mainland to convince the strikers to resume working. So on March 15, Uncle Gary, as he was now called by the working class, issued a now famous speech. The speech went like this. Yes, folks, this is your leader, Uncle Gary, speaking to you. My dear fellow Grenadians, you know that I am deeply concerned over the present state of affairs in this our dear little island. You too, every one of you, are concerned one way or another. As head of Grenada's two largest organizations, the Grenada People's Party and the Grenada Manual and Mental Workers Union, I feel obligated morally and spiritually to do something to alleviate, to stop, and when I say stop, I mean stop the burning of buildings and fields. Stop taking things away from the estates that are not belonging to you, particularly cocoa and nutmeg. And now, we take another matter, the going back to work. When I lifted my finger on the 19th of February and said strike, several thousands went on strike. That is because you have confidence in me and you know very well that Uncle Gary knows his whereabouts. Now, obviously, that was not an actual recording of Uncle Gary, not the absence of the Grenadian accent, but that was just a gift from us here at Tenement Yard to you. Let's continue. Historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton had this to say about Gary's speech. Quote, His famous March 15 speech reflected the style of his future leadership. In it, Gary's opportunistic nature reveals itself, his willingness to compromise with the colonial authorities while at the same time exploiting the situation to build his personal power." End quote. In a few months, Gary would capitalize off his increasing influence over the working class. With the universal adult suffrage now in effect, when elections were held on October 10, 1951, Gary with his own political party, the Grenada People's Party GPP, won 71% of the 20,622 votes, thus holding six out of the seven parish seats. On the opposition's side, only T.A. Marichaud held on to his seat. Still, Marichaud's constituency was that of the urban St. George's. Gary and the GNP had a large following amongst the rural black of Grenada. So in less than a year, the now 29-year-old Eric Matthew Gary, the union leader who led a group of estate workers into Santa Maria Tourist Hotel and demanded they be served a meal. The same Eric Matthew Gary who told domestic servant girls to go on strike against severe working conditions that saw them working from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. This same Eric Matthew Gary would become Grenada's most powerful political leader. As Gary stepped into his role as a politician, he also prompted fear into the upper classes. 
One account says that many of the elites in the country compared Gary to Julien Fedon and the Grenada Manual and Mental Workers Union GMMWU to Kenya's Mau Mau. The thing is, Gary's ascension would expose how deep Grenada's race and class relations go. Unlike the leaders at the time in the Caribbean, Gary was never accepted by the status quo. Jamaica had the light-skinned leaders in Alexander Bustamante and Norman Manley, while Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago had the esteemed, educated Dr. Eric Williams and Grantley Adams, respectively. In Grenada, however, here was a black man from rural Grenada who was one of the most powerful locals on the island. To the elites, Gary, a rural black poor, should know his place. We return once again to comments from historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton who noted, quote, Gary had upset the cultural status quo by bringing the black dispossessed from the countryside right into the heart of St. George's as an empowered force. The urban middle class hoped to put the stigma of blackness behind them by emulating the white elite. Yet here were these rural blacks calling into question the very advantages they had gained. End quote. As such, over the next few years, the elites exerted their economic control of the island to undermine Gary's reputation. So when Gary called another national strike in November 1953, it was rejected by the elites. This rejection and ultimately Gary just being vague about what his exact demands were would allow for the strike to be unsuccessful. This was the last time of the 1950s that the GMMWU called for a strike. Despite this, the image of Gary developed during the 1951 revolution as being a rebel that challenges the colonial status quo would stick with him for a very long time and ultimately laid the foundation of what would become known as Garyism. Garyism would come to be defined as the pride and rebellion Gary inspired, the self-seeking excesses of the man himself. However, his political party really did not have any organization or platform. Ironically, of the 110 pieces of legislation that were passed between 1952 and 1954, only nine offered any benefits to the working class. Gary also had speeches where he praised the colonial government, and this position would be noticed by his supporters, and soon they would withdraw their support from him and the GMMWU. Gary realized this new reality and sought out a new image for his party. He renamed the GPP to GULP, Grenada's United Labour Party. Still, during the 1954 elections, GULP only won 46% of the votes, 20% down from the 1951 elections. Gary once again did not take an initiative to enact laws to benefit the working class. Between 1955 and 1957, 83 laws were passed and all but one were geared towards the advancement of the working class. Then came the 1957 election where Gary ultimately faced the consequences of his disorganization and taking the working class and black rural population for granted. The newly created Grenada National Party GNP led by Gary's former second-hand Herbert, who you might remember was arrested with him during the 1951 revolution, took advantage of this. Still, the GNP had issues themselves. 
there was a lack of social programs to help the working class also. Between 1957 and 1958, some 81 laws were passed where all of them were in favor of the elites and their wealth. So between 1957 and 1960, the net income of planters went up by 170%, while the plantation workers' wages went up by 15.3% in the midst of a 6% rise on the cost of living, at a time when Grenada's unemployment rate was 42.6%. Maybe if the GNP had better organization and policies geared towards the poor and working class, Gary's legacy would fade away in the 1950s, but that was not the case. At this time, another attribute of Garyism would take form. Gary became interested in the supernatural, where he talked of magical powers and obia. This combined with his allegiance to the church would help him in his populist style of politics with the rural population, and in some way, he still had a psychological hold over that voting bloc. The people really remembered him as Uncle Gary. As history would have it, however, at the next election held in 1961, Gary could not run. Back in 1957, he led a steel band through an opponent's political meeting, and thus he lost his electoral rights. As such, in 1961, Joshua Thorne was now the leader of the GULP, and the party would go on to win 53% of the votes and 80% of the seats. Then in July of 1961, Joshua Thorne would resign as head of the GULP, making way for Gary to take up his previous position as leader of the political party. A month later, Gary would become chief minister of state. Now understand this. This was monumental because back in 1960, a new constitution was issued in Grenada and this allowed for the executive council to have more power. As such, Gary had the most political power he had ever had up to this point, and this power came with more control over government appointments and public funds. It was Gary, not the GULP, who held power, for Grenada's United Labour Party was, in some sense, an extension of the man himself. One of the founding members of the University of the West Indies Mona Campus's Department of Government, highly respected political scientist Dr. Archibald W. Singham, in his paper, The Hero and the Crowd in Colonial Polity, summarizes these activities by stating that, quote, Gary's political organization has remained personal even during campaign periods, and he has always commanded more support than the candidates he nominated. There is no functioning central organization. Gary instead maintains personal links with all the constituencies, but necessarily through the local candidate. A party supporter knows that if he wants action or decision, he must see Gary personally. End quote. This power that Gary commanded would lead to another characteristic in the era of Garyism. High levels of government corruption. One of Gary's first acts of his populist governance was to remove persons in the public sector who took opposition against this forthcoming corruption. Most memorably, he had a bitter spat with the financial secretary, who apparently hid documents from him. Gary would make him redundant and then appoint a principal secretary to oversee these duties. Gary would also make the chairman of the tenders board, an individual who reported directly to him, in charge of all awards. 
So in March of 1962, the Crown's representative to Grenada, James M. Lloyd, created an inquiry to investigate these allegations of corruption in the GULP government. The report that came out of this commission of inquiry was issued on May 8, 1962 and uncovered numerous levels of corruption in Gary's government. These were published in what would become known as the Squandermania Report. The highlight of the report was that Gary gave deals and granted government contracts to his inner circle. He declared that all cement should be bought from B.N. Davis and Company and that inflated prices while all government cars should be insured by an unrecognized firm owned by the businessman Cecil Maitland. But wait, unfortunately there's more. Then there was the final attempt to buy land for the government from a William Douglas at a very inflated price of $500 per acre, 400% higher than the valuation made by the superintendent of forestry. All of this took place within four months of Gary becoming Chief Minister of Grenada. On another note, now a common trait of the GULP, between 1961 and June 1962, only one of the 58 legislations enacted benefited the working class. Still, the report was just what the old elites needed to further undermine Gary and ironically his pro-capitalist government. The Crown suspended the new constitution and the Squandermania report would be a huge blow to Gary and ultimately ushered in the GNP's return to power come 1962. Even though the Squandermania report was a huge blow to Gary and the GULP, another issue of interest to Grenadians during the 1960s was on the rise, the Go Trinidad movement. In 1958, there was the establishment of the West Indies Federation, this federation was a political union comprising 10 territories, Antigua and Barbuda, Barbados, Dominica, Grenada, Jamaica, Montserrat, the then St. Kitts, Nevis, Anguilla, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and Trinidad and Tobago. British Guyana and Belize held observer status with the Premier of Barbados, Sir Grantley Adams, serving as the first and only Prime Minister of the Federation. This is so because when internal island conflict led to the Premier Norman Manley withdrawing Jamaica from the Federation, the Union fell apart. For, in the now famous words of Dr. Eric Williams, one from ten leaves not. Now in the early 1960s, there were talks in Grenada of another federation, this time between Grenada and Trinidad and Tobago. For years, Trinidad and Tobago had served as a means of employment for many Grenadians, where in turn, Grenadians had contributed to the social and economic development of the Twin Island State. Uriah Butler, who we spoke of in part one of this series, the Calypsonian Mighty Sparrow and Dame Hilda Bino, the first woman to serve as a governor of any British colonies, where she served as governor of Grenada between 1967 to 1972, are a prime example of this. As such, because of this history, this talk of a union state between the two countries was widely entertained by Grenadians and would birth the Go Trinidad movement between 1962 and 1967. There were also talks of another alternative among smaller British islands, which many termed the Little Eight. Gary was unsure of this union. However, the GNP, realizing how important Trinidad and Tobago was to the masses, quickly became pro-Trinidad. 
It is widely believed that Gary's hesitance of the Go Trinidad movement would make him play a subservient role to Dr. Eric Williams, for even though Gary at this time was the most powerful trade unionist in Grenada, he was no match for Dr. Williams, who was undoubtedly at the time one of the most esteemed politicians and intellectuals in the region. Still, despite Gary's hesitancy, a union was very popular among the public, and Gary needed the popularity. As such, he announced that after the elections, he would consider the establishment of this union. However, Gary's deceit over the past few months caught up to him, and not many people believed him, for he really had more to benefit financially by not entering a federation. One Calypso singer documented this in his 1962 song, The Eight Hater. Come early or come late, uncle is for little eight. But Uncle knows that Trinidad is what makes Grenada glad. Little Eight is Uncle Pet, because that's where he's sure to get motor car and house and ting, plenty cash for him to fling. Now Gary, realizing that his words carried no weight with the public, attempted his usual populism to win over the voting public. So one day, dressed in a white suit, top hat, and a walking stick, he arrived in St. George's on a vessel, reciting the Lord's Prayer. In a grand performance, he spoke of the many Judases who betrayed him. Yet still, these theatrics were in vain, as Gary lost the election to the Grenada National Party, GNP. Nothing came of the Go Trinidad movement, for no promises of any union between the two countries were made on Dr. Williams' end. However, Gary used this to his advantage and brought up claims of the GNP's decisiveness. He further stated that the GNP should resign and elections should be held immediately. With harsh comments, he said that the only Grenadian union that would happen under Herbert Blaze's leadership was between Karikou, Blaze's home island. So while Gary continued his attacks, the GNP governed. However, once again, not learning from their old mistakes, the policies they backed were towards the elites. The working class, especially rural blacks, were left behind. When the 1967 elections came around, the GNP made no progress in improving the lives of the majority of Grenadians. This, alongside Gary's reminder to Grenadians of the GNP's deceit of the Go Trinidad movement, would dominate the campaign. When the ballots were counted, the GULP won 54% of the popular vote and won 7 out of 10 seats. However, the 1967 election was important because previous constitutional changes made Grenada into an associated state. For the first time in the nation's history, Grenada would be under full internal self-government. As such, with the GULP's win, Gary became Premier of Grenada receiving the most power he had ever had in his political career. Unbeknownst to everyone, the next 12 years of Gary's time in office would be one described by many historians as an oppressive dictatorship. One scholar in particular, the esteemed professor of Caribbean studies, Dr. Gordon K. Lewis, in his book, Grenada the Jewel Deposited, described Gary's 12 years in power as, quote, a bogus radicalism geared to the private interests of the dictator and his small clique of friends, completely uninterested in any fundamental reconstruction of the society or the economy." End quote. 
So, for 12 years, Grenadians and the rest of the world would bear witness to the country's economic deterioration and domestic repression. These were highlighted by the many cases of Gary's bribes and corruption, real estate scams, extortion deals, sex scandals, international partnerships for his own self-interest, and his now-growing obsession with religion and flying saucers. But even more alarming, they would have to wake up every day and come face to face with the reality that Gary's secret police, the Mongoose Gang, and his secret army, the Green Beast, would come down on anyone and anything that stood in his way of power. And with that, we call an end to today's episode. To view the sources used in this episode and or recommendations to learn more about the topic, visit our website at tenementyardmedia.com. A transcript of this episode will be available five days after it has been posted to podcast outlets. And remember, we'd love to hear from you. Follow our social media pages at tenementyard underscore on both Instagram and Twitter to view additional postings on this episode and updates on other content created by Tenement Yard Media. We're open to conversation about this and other episodes and really all happenings around Caribbean history and culture. Just a quick note before we leave, we're over on Patreon at patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia if you'd like to support the show with a monthly donation of as little as $1. You can also make a donation of your choice at tenementyardmedia.com. Until next time, I'm your host Gabriel and this has been Lest We Forget, a historical podcast from Tenement Yard Media. What good?